We are going to continue on in our uh, series about sex. We only have really two, maybe let's see, three more times that we're going to be talking about this. Um, on the 10th of April is Pizza Theology. And so for those of you who somehow you've, this is you know, passed by you, and those of you who are from SSI, you know the whole Pizza Theology thing because we just stole it from you. Um, <laughs> our Pizza Theology is just called Let's Talk About Sex. So I don't know if there's going to be salt and pepper songs along with that or what, but that's our goal, is to just talk about gender, marriage, and sexuality. And so I'm going to give you kind of a, a real preview of what I'm going to be talking about today, um, but I'm going to be, I have like another hour and a half to be able to discuss the material that I'm discussing today. So I'm going to try to kind of move through it really quickly, uh, just a bare bones outline of it. And, um, and if you're interested more about this, you definitely need to be at our Pizza Theology on the 10th, okay? From 4 to 9 at UTD. I think that's right, 4 to 9 UTD. Um, and uh, on the 10th as well, we are going to have a service that is aimed at you guys providing our material, okay? It's one of the big things that we try to accomplish around here, and it seems to be difficult because I know a lot of us are, have been passive churchgoers, and so this idea of actually participating and contributing something is a weird idea to us. So we're going to uh, post some stuff online probably this week that will be anonymous, and it will be really specific questions that you can answer. And on the 10th, we're going to have kind of a lament and a praise service all wrapped up into one where pretty much all we're going to do is read your sound bites about sexuality, uh, whether that's some of the issues that you're struggling with, whether it's some of the things that you've found hope in, um, whatever that is and everything in between that, that's really going to be our entire service. Okay, It's going to be a worship service and a chance for us to hear the voices of our community in response to this long series that we've been doing since the beginning of the year. Uh, and so, and you don't have to read that, your own thing. The reason that we're sending it anonymously, if you want to, is so that someone else can read that tidbit, as long as we, uh, you know, get your approval. And so they're going to be two or three minute little, you know, pieces that we're going to read up in front of the church as a way to, you know, kind of, you know, relate with people's experiences and really hear from people who have all kinds of experiences and, and um, you know, thoughts on this. And that's going to be the 10th, Okay. Um, so be prepared to, for that and be thinking about that. It's going to be a really great, I think, and uplifting and powerful uh, worship service. Okay, so that's the goal for the 10th of our morning to kind of pave the way for the pizza theology in the afternoon. Okay, so uh, we originally, when starting this series, I called it Christian Sexual Ethics. And um, that's kind of a funny way of phrasing it, particularly since we've been reading Song of Solomon and most Christians have not used Song of Solomon as... Um, a source for Christian sexual ethics. But what I want to do for you today in this short 30 minutes is give you three what I think are defining Christian sexual ethics. In fact, I think they're just general ethics that all Christians should embrace, um, but particularly regarding sexuality. And then I'm going to apply those ethics to this issue of same-sex versus you know, opposite-sex attraction. And that is really my goal. That's it, is to kind of give you these three uh, ethical principles. Now, I want to back up a little bit and just give you a quick disclaimer. We don't need ethics as Christians, okay? Because ethics is a moral branch of philosophy that says we can logically figure out morality pretty much on our own. But of course, that's a problem, right? Because our logic is always going to be confined by the culture that we're in, by the time and place we're in, and so as Christians, we don't use ethical guidelines for things, okay? That's, I mean, ethics in and of themselves, if it's just a list of things that we should do and don't do, are fine. 
But we don't need ethics because we have something far better than a list of laws and morality. We have Jesus. Jesus is for us Christians our ethical guidebook. He himself and all the complexity that is being human and being God is for us our ethical standard. Okay? And so I'm calling this Christian sexual ethics not to suggest to you that we've all just sort of come up with these logical analysis of morality and said, here are three principles that are perfect. But my goal is simply to draw these three things out for you and say, this is what I see in Jesus regarding sexuality. And uh, so I just want to give that as a disclaimer, that we can have conversations about this all day long, but those conversations aren't going to be based on our cultural values or based on our ability to rationalize ideas. But they're going to center as Christians around the person of Jesus and how he interacted with people and what he taught about how to live. All right. And so, uh, you know, that that may seem semantic to you, but it's very, very important. Uh, In fact, I think when uh, Rick Watts was here at winter camp, he said this idea that, you know, Christians don't need ethics. Ethics were Greeks way of trying to kind of get outside of the gods and come up with their own logical ideas about morality. Uh, And so I would certainly agree with that in, in terms of what he was talking about there. So, number one, and I'm going to move through these pretty quickly. I mean, I'm really going to try to do 30 minutes here. 25, uh, yeah, I know some of you are laughing because every one of my sermons in this series have been over an hour. So, um, no, no, I'm not going to do that, okay? Uh, Yeah, sure. Okay, so number one, we are more than our sexual attractions. Okay, we are more than our sexual attractions. And, and this is, uh, I'm going to make another statement here too that seems unrelated, but hopefully I'll be able to tie them together. Believe it or not, and I know this is going to be hard for some of you to believe, sex is older than the West. Okay, I don't mean like the Wild West. <laughs> I mean the Western, you know, American frontier. I mean the West in Western thought. Believe it or not, sex pre-exists Western ideas and Western thought. Yeah, it's amazing actually. Uh, I've been researching and researching and studying and found out that it came before. I mean, who would have known, right? The way that Americans and Westerners often talk about sex, it's as if we just discovered all the important stuff about it. As if no one really had any good ideas before us, but man, we've got some really good ideas. So, we are more than our sexual attractions... And sex is older than the West, okay? And I'm using the West here as the West East, developed, Western, Greek, whatever you want to, you know, I'm not going to specify that. I don't need to. I don't, I don't feel like So, we are more than our sexual attractions. Too often, I think the message that both liberal Christians and conservative Christians are sending us is that sexual orientation... Uh, meaning that the, the, the folks that we're attracted to should somehow define some important part of our identity. And that is a claim that I don't think really has much to substantiate. Okay? And, and I want to first, you know, before I tell you the history of some of these ideas, talk about Jesus. Jesus had an ability to see people in their full personhood. He didn't get tripped up on the categories and labels that society placed on people. He didn't interact with people in the us versus them type mentality. It's one of the most endearing, I think, traits of our Lord. Is that he was in a society full, full of people who hated other people. Simply based on their race and ethnicity. 
or based on their religious background, or based on various labels of sinful that people had placed on other people. And yet he was able to interact with people in a way that saw them as a whole person and didn't identify one thing about them and that make them who, uh, you know, how he treated them. It didn't govern how that happened. And I think this has become a real problem with us when we talk about sexual orientation or attraction or behavior or all of that stuff. As we've begun to think of our society as somehow split in heterosexuals and homosexuals. As if somehow those are just these two discrete categories and you've got to pick one or the other or be one or the other and that's all there is. There's a real problem with that, okay? So I first want to give you a little bit of history of where this idea of modern orientation came from. Most societies in the past, including most societies that exist today, simply saw same-sex behavior, sexual behavior, as exploratory. As something that sort of happens in young kids, and it's a phase, and they'll get over it, and blah, 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 and whatever else. Modern science even tells us that a lot of times same-sex attraction sort of comes out, or people begin to identify it around the ages of between 9 and 11, depending on your age. Again, that's not to say it's everybody experiences it at the same time. Um, but modern society, or, or traditional societies, mostly thought of, of same-sex behavior as something that would sort of pass, as something that you know people were naturally attracted to or experimenting with, but in no way defined who they were as a person. Okay, so we move into uh, you know this Enlightenment era and our fascination with science and scientific facts, right? And we begin to start thinking about, well, so how does genetics maybe play a role? Or how do genes, and our understanding of genes, we still don't really understand completely, but particularly 150, 200 years ago, we had no idea, play a role in people's attraction and their sexuality. And so we began to really answer this question and think, well, you know what, maybe there's something more to this attraction thing than just experimentation. That there's some genetic or, you know, medical kind of component to it. So, because people started thinking about this idea, there was an automatic backlash between those people traditionally who thought, well, no, this is just a behavior people do. This can't possibly be something that people were designed to do. And so we began to criminalize the behavior. And people began seeing this as not only just a bad thing, but as a crime. And so in the Western societies, we began making homosexual behavior illegal. Illegal. Okay, And you fast forward 150 years, and I'm going over some really quick history here, and finally this idea that science may have a role in attraction, that genetics rather uh, has a role in attraction, that we, we sort of understand that through science, became a more popularized idea. So turn of the 20th century, we start to medicalize orientation. This is where we get our words homosexual and heterosexual. They are literally 120 years old. And there are medical diagnoses for people who see themselves as either correct, which of course was heterosexual, or incorrect as homosexual. So we're still, our society is fighting against this idea of whether this is something genetic or not. The medical professionals began, and psychologists, particularly in the early part of the 20th century, began to diagnose people as having you know, sexual dysphoria or having sexual issues because they didn't see themselves as being fully attracted to the opposite sex. Now, this still didn't become an identity thing. It was about you know, having some aberration in your personality or some problem with your genetic makeup. So people were separating the attraction and the behavior. 
Still, you could be attracted, but as long as you didn't act out on that behavior, you were medically fine. Okay? Now, we fast forward to today, and things have sort of gone full circle. It's no longer appropriate to consider homosexual behavior as a problem medically, right? The DSM took that out of their manual, uh, you know, and it's no longer an issue or a problem for someone to be considered homosexual. Part of what led to our thinking about that and even wanting to talk about that was that we've, we pretty much bought into the idea that people are genetically attracted to, or at least in part, their genetics and their environmental factors contribute to their attractions. So how could we possibly tell people that they're medically messed up simply because of things that are built into their DNA or built into environmental factors that are mostly outside of their control? And so what follows from there is the assumption that our attractions are somehow normative for us and should be a defining factor in who we think we are. Okay, now that's a short history, and I know that I just went way too far into trying to explain that, but I'm not going to worry about it. So I believe that our definition, our our ideas of homosexuality and heterosexuality are absolutely incorrect and inaccurate. The vast majority of people who experience same-sex attraction don't even consider themselves to be homosexual in orientation. They're not ready to buy into that identity that they are this and this alone. And so what we see, I think, in reality in terms of what we're talking about in our society is this refocus on trying to label people. We've got homosexuals, we've got heterosexuals, and we've got no one really in between. Or if we do, they're sort of like a mix and they're bisexual, but that's just a third category that we don't understand very well. But I think we've got to get outside of these, this polar way of thinking about this issue and recognize that people are pretty complex. They have complex histories. They have complex genetics. They have a lot of issues that are going and surrounding around both their heterosexuality and homosexuality. Even though I think we ought to probably strike those from our vocabulary because they're not incredibly helpful. So what what that leaves us is with these sort of three perspectives today that I don't think are very helpful. The liberal modernist perspective, which is really kind of 50s, 60s, and the idea that, well, science will prove to us that this really isn't that big of an issue. Science will show us concretely that same-sex attraction is something that just happens in all people and therefore... Uh, we shouldn't you know, see this as simply a choice that people make. And when people talk about that language or use you know, he- he- uh, homosexuality as being a choice, I-, I often ask them, okay, well, for those of you who are heterosexual, whatever the heck that means, how many of you chose to be heterosexual? And have any of you thought about what it might be like to choose something different than what you believe? And now you can start to kind of wonder, okay, wait, that sounds really complicated and really difficult. So this idea that, you know, science will sort of show us has not played out. We have plenty of psychological studies that tell us that in part, same-sex attraction is something good. We have plenty of sociology, sociological studies that tell us the opposite. Yeah, it's mostly environmental factors. This question is still left unanswered. And I think trying to go to one end or the other to prove one end or the other really, in my mind, is insignificant. And not even very helpful. Then we have the postmodern mindset, which is often associated with uh, kind of liberal thinking. And this is the idea, and I think this is one of the ones that's been very helpful for us in some ways, but it's been incredibly harmful for us in some ways. 
And the postmodern mindset could be summed up really quickly in the idea that science is not going to really tell us what we need to know. We're just going to have to figure that out on our own. As individuals, we're just going to have to decide and figure this stuff out on our own. And so sexuality isn't exactly something that, that is important for the community or important for someone else. It's just something that I decide about my unique and individual identity. And my unique and individual identity is the core of who I am. And all other things flow out of that thing. All right? Now, this is incredibly helpful when it comes to individual liberties. For us to recognize how people are individually valuable and individually important. But it's incredibly harmful when we begin to equate morality with an individual perception of what I think is right or wrong. Because at least when I can focus on a tradition, I at least have a starting place. But when it's all about me deciding who I am, I'm going to get in all kinds of trouble. I'm going to be reinventing the wheel and making all kinds of mistakes that other humans have made before me. But I don't find the conservative perspective on this any better. This is the third perspective. This idea that, well, we should just look to nature to show us. Procreation, marriage has traditionally and always been opposite sex relationships. Therefore, it's sort of our natural duty to just be heterosexual. (laughs) That in no way is a, in my mind, very convincing argument. So what do we do when we have three different arguments... None of which really seem to live up to, in my mind, uh, the idea of really recognizing that people are complex. That runs a conservative perspective that, you know, sort of more or less buys into this idea of natural theology, that we need to do what's sort of natural. And that, you know, it's when you hear Christians say, well, the reason that homosexuality is wrong is because, you know, we need to have babies. And if you have babies, you, know, you can't be a real human, you know? Um, well, not exactly the best idea. Uh, and so there's this appeal to nature to prove uh, one thing or the other. Uh, again, guys, I, I can't go into all of this. I, I'm sorry. I know that some of this is, you know me, I have a real t- terrible tendency to teach rather than preach. And I apologize for you for, for all of that terrible teaching mentality inside of me, okay? I thought about that this morning. So our modern orientation, I'm just going to sum this up, is largely a, a construct of, of how our society is more or less arguing about this issue. But I think one of the real big issues that most everybody has missed is the idea that we are not defined by our sexual attractions. We are far more than that. And I think, if anything, science bears that data out more than anything else, is that it's too complex. That our attractions and that our orientation and that our behavior often doesn't even line up. <laughs> it's not straight. For a straight person or a gay person, and all these labels I'm going to challenge, I think, a little bit later on, hopefully. But I think as Christians, we've got to recognize that we are more than our sexual attractions. We are full people. In all of its complexity, in all of our genetics, and of all of our environmental and cultural factors, we are complex. And if we're truly going to interact with people, we're going to have to recognize that in them. And quit labeling and categorizing so that we can feel more comfortable. So that we can have a grasp on reality. So that we can play God and immediately judge. I'm going to say some things here in a moment that might come across as offensive to some of you. But, you know, whatever. It's going to have to happen, okay? Number two. So we are more than our sexual attraction. Sex is older than the West. Alright? That's number one. It's the number one Christian ethic that we all have to embrace. Uh, In my talk in Pizza Theology, I'm going to talk a lot about other cultures and their views about sexuality, which are crazy in terms of their differences between ours. So who's right? 
think sometimes we tend to think that because we're a Christian nation, we're more right than other people. Uh-oh. That's tricky. But uh, we've got some different ideas, for sure. And those ideas have largely shaped us. And I think they've done something that's really unhealthy, and that's that they've convinced us that our, our attraction should define our identity. That is who we are. That is one of the most important characteristics about who we are. And I don't think that's true. Number two, sexuality is about... In, in this one, I've already kind of, I think, explored with you, so I'm going to go over pretty quickly. Sexuality is about seeing and serving fellow humans as image bearers. Maybe that's not something we tend to think about very often, right? Sexuality, and I, again, I don't, I don't, by using the term sexuality, which is itself a very vague and ambiguous term, I'm not talking about sex itself, right? It would be a weird way of saying this, but I'm saying sex is about seeing and serving fellow humans. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. I can agree with that guy. I think, mean, you know, it's, right. No, um, sexuality. So all of the stuff that we define as sex and sexuality, and again, this is a very vague, I think, a nebulous word, but don't have time to go into it, is about seeing and serving fellow humans as image bearers and not using people as mirror images. Remember the analogy that I gave you guys about that uh, show that I watched in The Wire, right? A uh, guy is having sex with a prostitute and instead of looking at her and she's very beautiful, he's looking at himself in the mirror. And so much of the way we think about sex and practice sex is simply about us projecting our wants onto another person. And that is messed up. Because God has created all of us to be image bearers. Every single one of us is stamped with the image of God. And when Paul talks about uniting Christ with a prostitute, what he's ultimately talking about is you are uniting the image of God with another person for a cheap thrill. And in our society, we treat sex as an insignificant thing. Often as an insignificant thing that allows us to get off at the expense of somebody else even if they're doing the same with us, which doesn't make it any better. And that's really unfortunate. So sexuality is about seeing and serving fellow humans as image bearers and not using people as mirror images. It's simply just something that I'm going to project my wants and desires onto. And then there's a second part of this, of course, because this one has to be really long and complicated. Sexuality is not primarily about personal fulfillment or doing my natural duty. That's the second part of number two. She's like, is that three of the four of the fifth one? Second part of the second one. I know. I'm sorry, guys. This is why we, we record these, okay? We don't record them because people are like, oh, yeah, I really want to listen to him. You know, he's such a great speaker. It's like, I got to listen to that thing like eight times just to figure out his points each time. <laughs> or like the title, okay? Um, yeah, so the second one is sexuality is about seeing and serving fellow humans as image bearers and not using people as mirror images. And the second part of that is sexuality is not primarily about personal fulfillment or doing my natural duty. Guys, one of the big issues right now, according to Pew Research, is that old school folks, folks, you know, boomers and Generation X and Y and all that stuff, tend to think about sex as more of a natural duty. Sex is about marriage and about procreation. And I want to suggest to you that that's no better an idea then sex is ultimately about personal fulfillment and connecting with someone. Because they're both human ways of thinking about sexuality. About fulfilling some natural human desire, whether that's to have kids and to be married and have, you know, whatever, or to have personal fulfillment and have uh, someone around you. Millennials, you guys, are much more likely to think about sex in terms of personal fulfillment. That it's a great way for me just to sort of connect with someone. 
Uh, and I know we think of that as an extreme idea, but that's the society we live in. I talk to my students all the time in my classes who think about sex that way. They have casual sexual relationships, which are more about getting to know someone than they are about you know, um, experiencing someone else in a really deep and meaning and significant way. Okay? So we've got to get outside, I think, about, uh, of both of these. This idea of personal fulfillment, that sex is really just sort of about me expressing my love for someone or feeling connected deeply to someone and all of these other ideas, which we'll talk about a little bit later. I think this is the wrong debate that we're having about whether or not uh, it should be about natural duty or about personal fulfillment. We've got to rediscover some of the gospel distinctives here. And that's why it's, it, it's, we have to be very careful with the language that we're using. Um, because when someone tells us this or that, and we immediately assume that they mean this or that, <laughs> we get into a lot of trouble. So when Christians say, well, you know, I, it's okay for me to have sex because I really love them. And I'm thinking, well, what does that mean? You know, what does it mean that you really love them? What, what, let's explore that idea some and let's talk a little bit about the definition of love. Because a lot of times that's about expression of infatuation and not an expression of some deep commitment that you've made to this person. And we've also equally got to be careful about judgment, about immediately judging people. A lot of times Christians feel the need to immediately put their foot down on some of these issues or throw stones at other people who are putting their foot down, right? On either end of the spectrum. We tend to like to have our voices heard and we make judgments really quickly. But we've got to figure out what's the gospel distinctive on here. What conversation should we be having about sex and sexuality? If we can't just settle on these sound bites, these political sound bites, what questions should we be asking? What conversation should we be having? And hopefully this series has led us to some of those, and I'll suggest some more. I think one of the big ones is just that, that I think the New Testament really teaches us is that sex is kind of weird. It's, there's something about it that connects in maybe more ways than a lot of other things do the mind and the body. Uh, one of the real wonderful things about uh, Paul's usage of the word soma is he, he's talking about sex as a deeply interpersonal communication with someone. Uh, meaning that uh, you know, it's like com- conversing with someone, a deep form of communication. And, uh, and I would say that in most of the way sex is practiced in our society, it's sort of like just a conversation where someone's talking at you <laughs> or trying to impress you. It's not a deep conversation where you, where you sort of have two minds meeting and there's deep values shared there and it's ultimately about really getting to know someone but rather it's just sort of a cheap quick conversation that sort of I walk away from thinking ah you know whatever feel good from and uh, and I like comparing that but but Paul talks about sex as being a deep connection uh, that we do with our bodies and I, I think what's so wonderful about this when you really look at Jesus' teachings is he had a really wonderful way of com- you know combining both the spiritual things that happen in our life and the bodily things that happen. And I think every now and again we get too much into one direction or the other. We begin to denigrate or uh, think of bodily things as bad things, as pleasure and fulfillment is no good, and as expression, like we all should be like ascetic Christians. If it doesn't feel bad, then it's not truly spiritual. <laughs> like, where do we get that idea from? You know, remember our Lord was one that was called a drunkard and a friend of sinners. He seemed to be having a lot of fun in his life, okay? But nor can we go to the other end of the spectrum that what Jesus wants us to do now is have everything good in life and feel good. And our worship should be immediately 
you know, emotional and, you know, should bring us to these deep places that make us feel correct. And every other experience outside of Sunday worship should be some, you know, lower than experience. As if spirituality of things is just these ideas and emotions. Um, so we've got to kind of, you know, ooh, uh, bring the two together. And I, I uh, won't go much more into that. I'll just keep that incredibly vague. Uh, one of the things that I will tell you, though, about where ideas about romanticism came from and where this idea uh, that our sexual urges are, uh, you know, sort of deep and significant, it comes from a, a philosopher actually named Rousseau. And um, Rousseau kind of, and there's a lot of ways to say his last name, so I'm just going to say how I like it to say it. Um, basically, he had a real problem with arranged marriage, okay? He thought uh, that arranged marriage was really, like, really not about love. It was just about economic partnership. He saw this whole natural duty thing as being, like, so not romantic, okay? And so what he came down to was that, well, you know, our sexual urges say something deep about who we want to be with, and they're significant, and therefore that should really communicate, uh, you know, our true uh, capacity for love for others. So that we should use our sexual urges to inform our ideas about love and marriage so that we don't end up in these economic partnerships that are devoid of love and meaning. It doesn't sound like a bad idea, but of course, taken to its fullest extent, we have what we have now, which is people defining a relationship based on things that have to do with their own pleasure and expression of personal fulfillment. You fulfill me. You make me feel good. This is who I really am because it achieves my desire. And then we do this with each other. And so that really comes, again, from an Enlightenment age uh, you know, type, of, uh, type of thinking. At the time, it made sense, right? Because it was trying to balance people away from this natural duty thing. All right, uh, my last point here. Sex is a good gift from a great God. It is not a God or a demon in and of itself. Sex is a good gift from a great God. And it's not a god or a demon in and of itself. Some of us need to really lower our expectations and our understandings about sex. We just do. We need to lower them. We need to stop treating sex as this god. And some of us need to heighten our expectations of sex and expectations for it. We need to stop treating it as this dirty little demonic thing that you know we're going to have to do at some point so that we can have a few kids. <laughs> um, and I know you guys are thinking I'm la- you know, you're laughing, but a lot of people in marriage have both of these hang-ups. It's particularly interesting when you get two people who are hung up on the other end of the spectrums, right? One who thinks of it as a god and the other thinks of it as demonic. Then you get some real problems. And there's other ways of thinking about this for certain. But you know, the reason I think Jesus doesn't spend a ton of his time on talking about sex is because it just wasn't near as significant as we tend to make it. And we've got to be very, very careful in making sure that sex and sexuality has a proper place in our minds and in our place of life. When you're young, you just naturally think about this a lot more. And you're in our society, you think about it a lot more. Sure, I get it, I understand. But it's a good gift from a great God, and the focus there is on that great God part. He wants us to have sex that's pleasurable and deeply meaningful, and that's great and good. But the act of sex itself it has never propped up a good marriage. I guarantee you. It has never been the foundational thing that made two people truly love each other. In fact, Nietzsche, who, uh, you know, one of the most cynical and odd uh, philosophers, um, let me see if I can find this quote from him, because I think it's such a weird and wonderful quote. Oh, I don't have it anymore. 
Um, but he basically just says, and you can look up you know, Nietzsche quote, uh, that the best way to find someone you want to live with uh, for the rest of your life is to find someone who you really love talking to. Because communication and conversation is the majority of what you'll be doing in your relationship. <laughs> and he actually compares, in some ways, sexuality uh, to conversation. And I think in that way, I love it. I love the idea that, that God has given us both conversation and, and complex forms of communicating with each other. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and similar to he has, he's given us conversation. I think there are some definite overlaps there. Okay, so I've taken us all through all of these different theoretical, ethical principles here to come to this one, I think, really tricky issue. And that's what do we do with people who have very strong same-sex attraction? Uh, number one, strong is itself a difficult word. <laughs> Because people are all over the map. I mean, they really are. And that changes from time to time. The most complicated uh, sexual indication skills right now are time-based. They're over the past year. That's how much scientists have come to think about this fluidity. Now, girls even more than guys. And I'll explain this a whole lot more when, when in pizza theology and the differences between those who are poor, attraction versus behavior versus orientation, and things like that. But what do we do with people who... Uh, have and those of us who have same-sex attraction. What's out there? Too many Christians have offered, and there's, of course, three major views on this. There's the far liberal side of Christianity that says, okay, if, if you know, truly same-sex attraction is something that's outside of people's control, then how possibly could God keep them from being able to get married? And guys, I'm sorry, but that's a very strong, in my mind, argument. I mean, it's one that we have to grapple with. We have to deal with. We have to talk about. We have to figure out. Um, And particularly, we have to allow Jesus in the Scripture to inform how we think about this topic. The other end of the spectrum says, in terms of conservative Christianity, that you either need to change your attractions, be healed from those attractions, and how can we possibly say God can't heal you, even though we have very little evidence of people ever changing their attraction, because it is very difficult, particularly for people who have strong same-sex attraction, okay? Um, so it should be celibate. It's the only way for them to uh, truly, you know, carry out their, uh, you know, their, their way of life. And these need to be celibate completely. And what these two ends of the spectrum, I think, in my mind, completely ignore, is that the vast majority of humans who have ever existed who experience same-sex attraction, both in the long way of thinking about it historically and in ways of thinking about it now, have chosen, Christians and non-Christians alike, to still get married to the opposite sex. Still chose to. Now how could we have a whole group of people choose to do something that's not in line with their sexual attraction? Well, what's really interesting to me is this view, it seems like, in our society is largely lost. No one's talking about this one. Even though this is the majority of Christians who report uh, you know, some same-sex attractions have, have chosen to marry someone of the opposite sex, uh, and we've just not given them a voice. Because conservatives say it's a sham, marriage, because if they're you know, not you know, going with their sexual attraction, then it, they're really not being true to who they are. And what's really ironic is conservatives and liberals both agree on this point. Both agree 
that if someone who has same-sex attraction marries someone of the opposite sex for the purpose of raising a family and having a love relationship with them, it's somehow a sham. I mean, they have a different idea on why it's a sham, but they basically come to the same perspective. And I think, and I'm certainly speaking on behalf of those people, particularly in our church that I know, but even my friends who struggle with same-sex attraction but are still married to the opposite sex, need a voice. And one of the main things I hear from some of these folks is simply that their sexual attractions don't define who they are. They just don't. They don't define the choices that they're ultimately going to make in terms of their orientation. And I think we need to give that third perspective a voice in our church and in our thinking. And I think it follows from some of the ethical principles that I'm giving to you. Am I telling you which one of those three things that you ought to believe and think? No, I really truly do believe that there are great arguments for all three. I'm ready for someone to come teach me and tell me how it is that gay marriage okay, is completely okay according to God's standard. I'm open for it. I can't see it in the scripture. I just can't. But I'm ready and I'm open. And if it's true and if that's right, then please come and be the one to teach me that concept. But when I look at the Bible, I just don't see that being approved. If someone wants to teach me, I'm open to the idea. So I think there are are these sort of three at least, but probably a lot more perspectives on that, that Christians who embrace these Christian sexual ethics can ultimately have conversations about and talk about and address, and certainly they're going to want to argue with each other. So those are my three Christian uh, Christian sexual ethics that I think are important for us. And, And by the way, these could apply to much bigger topics, guys. One of the real issues I have with people talking about same sex attraction is that somehow in their mind they've decided that same-sex attraction is somehow automatically worse than opposite-sex attraction. Uh, Are you kidding me? Opposite-sex attraction is fraught with all the same difficulties and failures. You know, and somehow we allow young people to experiment with sex so long as it's the opposite sex and then we've approved it as if people experimenting with same-sex attraction are like double wrong. They've like added an insult on top of injury or something. It's like, oh, no. Guys, in a sense, God didn't create any one of us to be heterosexual or homosexual. Our culture has defined these things. And this idea of heterosexual people being womanizers or manizers, is that even a word? I don't think so. Why not? That's discriminatory against men. <laughs> I just realized that. It's not very, not very common that you could say that. My wife is giving me a very <laughs> You know, but, but this, this idea that we have to constrain our sexuality and sacrifice in our sexuality is something that's not being talked about. Uh, but heterosexual people, again, using this term incredibly loosely, do this exact same thing in marriage. The whole point of marriage is that you're going to give up on all those other people that you could be dating and having sex with so that you can commit to this one person, right? I mean, in terms of your sexual you know, commitment. And so often we've treated heterosexuality as automatically less bad than any kind of same-sex attraction. That's not true. It is not true. It's fundamentally wrong to think like that. Both our heterosexuality and our homosexuality are flawed in God's sight. And when we try to kind of elevate one or the other, I think we're doing a a real disservice to ourselves. Because we're not living up to the, the, um, you know, not the commands, but the goal that God's given us in our sexuality. To be by nature self-serving in it. And using it as a tool to really grow close with another person. And value them. Um, 
Yeah, so that's what I got for you. I'm going to remind you again what they are. We are more than our sexual attractions. Sex is older than the West. (laughs) Sexuality is about seeing and serving fellow humans as image bearers. Not using people as mere images. Now I'm like really hot. It's like went from freezing to like I'm sweating. Uh, It's okay. It's all good. Sexuality is not primarily about personal fulfillment or doing my natural duty. Sex is a good gift from a great God. It is not a God or a demon in and of itself. So, uh, if that all seems somewhat confusing to you and I left a lot of questions unanswered, then, you know, come and listen to me talk about this for another hour and a half at Pizza Theology. Some of you are like, all right, definitely crossing that off my list, you know. (laughs) I heard that bit and I'm pretty much done. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.